Good afternoon, everyone. Under the Levitical system, five classes of sacrifices were delineated and regulated. And these are covered in chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Leviticus and mentioned a number of other places elsewhere. And these sacrifices, these five class classifications or classes of sacrifices were those that were most commonly and frequently offered under the Levitical system. There were a few other sacrifices that off, were offered on special occasions, such as the Passover sacrifice and certain other ones. But these sacrifices were the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and the peace offering. Each sacrifice delineated under the Levitical system had its special and multifaceted significance, although they're all related and in certain respects overlap and interlock with one another. In a general sense, the burnt offering in which the entirety of the offering was consumed on the fire, with the exception of the skin of the animal, was consumed on the fire of God's altar. The entire sacrifice was burnt up on the altar, so it was called the burnt offering. Now, burnt offering can also apply to other portions of other sacrifices that were burnt on the altar, such as the fat of other offerings, but in terms of the sacrifice itself referred to as the the burnt offering, that was the entire animal that was burnt on the altar. And that symbolized, in spiritual terms, symbolizes complete self-surrender to God on the part of the one offering the sacrifice. The grain offering, among other things, is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. The sin offering symbolized the propitiation of God's wrath through an expression of repentance and expiation of the sin of which one is guilty. The trespass offering symbolizes making amendment for sin or a satisfaction for sin. The peace offering symbolizes reconciliation and communion between the supplicant and God. The sacrifices were never an end in themselves, but were intended to teach spiritual lessons and to point to a greater reality. As we read in Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 4, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, under the law, a priest in the Levitical system had to be a Levite, that is, a member of the tribe of Levi, which Jesus Christ was not humanly. He was of the tribe of Judah and also had to be a descendant of Aaron. So Jesus Christ would not have qualified to be a priest under the Levitical system, but he is a priest under a different order, the order of Melchizedek, which was what Paul is writing about here, 
comparing and contrasting the two systems. And in verse 5, he went on to say that these Levitical priests serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mount. So the Levitical system with its sacrifices and its priesthood and the other things that were associated with the Levitical system in terms of the apparatus, the physical apparatus of it was symbolic and it was a model of something you might say more real, more lasting, more permanent. It was simply a model of a greater reality the heavenly reality, the spiritual reality. And that system, the Levitical system, was an educational tool intended to point to Christ and to how we ought to relate to Christ. As Paul wrote in Galatians 3 and verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster, our teacher, our instructor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the system points to Christ and to those things that pertain to God's kingdom, that is, of which the head is Jesus Christ under God the Father. And so those things that were taught and pointed to under the Levitical system, that's, that's what it was intended to point to or to teach, the, the reality of the kingdom of God, the reality of Jesus Christ and God the Father and their purpose and plan for mankind. One of the aims of the sacrifices was to point to the spirit and intent, the frame of mind, that God desires in us, we who are his creation. It would have been pointless and meaningless, of course, for sacrifices to be offered without any real useful or edifying motive behind those things, just to do them as an exercise that was done routinely and without any thought or consideration as to its meaning would have been worthless and was worthless for those who entered into the sacrifices with that attitude. And we see the attitude that God wanted and intended all along reflected in Psalm 51 and verse 17 where he said, where David wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. For the sacrifices to be really acceptable to God required this attitude of a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. That's what God really was looking for on our part. And that is the aim toward which the sacrifices are pointing in terms of their significance. Going to God with a broken and contrite heart a spirit that is willing to yield and submit to God and that desires to please God. In Psalm 34, in verse 18, 
We read, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Notice God is near to those who have a broken heart and saves those who have a contrite spirit. Not just somebody who goes to God with a sacrifice, but has an attitude of hostility and enmity toward God and his laws. That was the attitude with which Cain approached God. And why, that's why his sacrifice was rejected. He didn't go to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Rather, he went to God with a haughty, selfish, self-centered attitude, seeking from God the things that he wanted, but not being willing to give to God the reverence due to God. It's our yieldedness to God and His commandments that most please God, not the physical sacrifices of themselves. But at the same time, there are vital lessons to be learned in what is represented in the respective sacrifices of the Levitical system. As I said, they're an educational tool. We're meant to learn lessons from them. In a previous sermon, I discussed some of the symbolism of the burnt offering and the sin offering. Today, I want to discuss in this sermon the symbolism and some of the spiritual lessons inherent in the peace offering. Remember, there were five specific classes of offering under the Levitical system. One of those was the peace offering. The peace offering was the last sacrifice to be offered in the order of sacrifices when they were all offered together or in sequence. The first was the sin offering, teaching the need for atonement for sin, and then the burnt offering, picturing the need for absolute surrender to God's will. And this reflects how we progress in our relationship toward God as we enter into conversion And we repent of our sins, receive atonement for the, those sins, and then we are expected to live our lives as living sacrifices before God, living a life of surrender to God's will. But then were the grain offerings demonstrating homage to God and acknowledgement of His providence and sovereignty. And then the peace offering picturing the joyfulness, thanksgiving, and well-being associated with standing in a right relationship with God. In Leviticus 3 and verse 1, we read about the peace offering. There's a lot more in the scriptures concerning the peace offering than what we'll read here, but this gives you the basic idea behind it. In verse 1, Leviticus 3, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand, lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle. All offerings, all sacrifices to God under the Levitical system were to be 
slain at the door of the tabernacle, that is, near the entrance to the tabernacle or the temple later on, and there were only one or two rare exceptions to that. The uh, red heifer was actually slain outside the camp, but the other sacrifices, all of them, were required to be sacrificed at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Now, in some cases, the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. In other cases, the blood was sprinkled around the altar or on objects associated with the, with the tabernacle, depending on the sacrifice and how it was to be administered in, in specific cases. But in the case of the peace offering, the blood was sprinkled around the altar, and he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. So all of the fatty parts in the intestinal area of the animal was to be removed and burnt as a burnt sacrifice, a sacrifice made by fire to the Lord on the altar. And Aaron's sons, verse 5, shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering as a sacrifice or a peace offering, a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish, and so on. And so... The peace offering could consist of a bull or a cow or a male or female sheep or goat. And as we read, the intestinal fat was to be burnt upon the altar. And also later on it mentions in the same context that the fatty tail of a sheep, if the sheep was an offering, then the fatty tail of the sheep and the tail of the sheep consists largely of fat that also was to be taken and burnt on the altar. We read in verse 5 that the priest was to burn the fat of the peace offering on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice. It was to, to be burnt upon the burnt sacrifice. As I mentioned earlier, when these offerings were offered in sequence. The last one to be offered was the peace offering. And the portions of the peace offering that were to be burned on the altar of burnt offering was to be laid upon those portions that had already been laid upon the altar as the burnt offering. So it was to be placed upon the burnt offering that had been previously laid on the fire. And symbolically, then, the burnt offering serves, as you might say, the foundation for the peace offering. In our relationship with God, we can't get to the point spiritually symbolized by the peace offering, which is reconciliation with God, 
without going through those previous steps that are required for us to be placed in a state of reconciliation with God. First comes the requirement for the atonement for sin, the removal of our sins. And then we must devote ourselves to God. And then we can be in a right relationship with God, a state of reconciliation with God. Of course, all of that goes together. It all fits together. And as I mentioned earlier, the sacrifices are all related and interlocking. But we need to understand that there are certain requirements in terms of having a relationship with God. There are things that God requires of us. God does not just take us as we are without anything being required of us in terms of our changing or our approach toward God and toward what God wants of us. The surrender of oneself can lead to peace with God. And it's interesting too that that God himself paved the way because it was the complete self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sacrificing of Christ offering himself as a sin offering and also as a burnt offering in the sense that he gave up himself totally to God, both in the way he lived his life as well as the way he died. It was his sacrifice ultimately that makes possible the peace that can exist between God and man. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a sin offering and a burnt offering, there would be no peace, no hope of reconciliation between God and mankind. The peace offering was symbolically the sharing of a meal between the supplicant or the offerer and God. Notice in Leviticus 3 and verse 13, it says the priest shall burn them on the altar as food. This is burning the fat, fatty pieces on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat of the offering was symbolically food for God. Literally, it could be translated that it is the bread of the offering by fire to the Lord. The bread of the offering or the food of the offering by fire to the Lord. And the idea of the peace offering includes the idea of sharing a meal, so to speak, at God's table. Sharing a meal in the company of God at his table. And the part of the animal presented to God upon the altar is regarded as his share of the feast. And so it is called his food or his bread. Also symbolic of the sharing of the meal with God is that both the one offering the peace offering and the priests of God ate a portion of the sacrifice. So the priests of God also shared in the sacrifice 
and they had a particular certain portions that were reserved for them for them to eat along with the portions that were given back to the uh, the supplicant or the offerer for him to eat as well as his family and other other people as we'll get into later in Leviticus 7 we read more about various sacrifices including the peace offering and in Leviticus 7 and verse 15 says the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered he shall not leave any of it until morning and there were actually three distinct types of peace offerings one was called the offering of thanksgiving and it was an offering that was brought in thanksgiving for one's blessings or perhaps for a particular blessing and it was offered as a sacrifice specifically as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to god for having been a recipient of particular blessings and in the case of this sacrifice the meat of the sacrifice that was to be eaten had to be eaten that same day the sacrifice was offered but it goes on in verse 16 to say if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering i believe in the king james it says a free will offering but in most respects except for certain exceptions that are delineated in scripture all peace offerings were voluntary in the sense that a person could decide at any time to offer a peace offering although peace offerings were expected at certain times especially at the feast they were still regarded as voluntary offerings so in the case of the a vow offering or a voluntary offering or a free will offering which was done simply as an expression of rejoicing before god or perhaps making a request for god's blessings in the future perhaps all of those things it shall be eaten the same day that he offers this, his sacrifice but on the next day the remainder of it also may be eaten so for these peace offerings it could be eaten on the day of the offering and anything left over could be eaten the next day the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire could not be eaten if any was left over to the third day it had to be consumed on the fire of the altar in leviticus 34 or excuse me no leviticus 7 and verse 34 says for the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering i have taken from the children of israel these were the portions that were given to the priests and these portions were waved before god and heaved before god in other words they were taken and motions were made as the priest held the portion of the sacrifice in his hand it was either waved back and forth in the case of the breast or the thigh was heaved up and down as a token before god of offering this to god and in a sense it was considered also his portion of the sacrifice so it says i have taken these from the children of israel 
from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by statute forever. So the, the peace offering was the sharing of a meal with God. And this vicarious sharing of the meal with God through the burning of the fat on the altar and the eating of the portion by the priest, also the eating by the one doing the offering, symbolized, among other things, the covenant relationship that exists between the offerer who is accepted by God and God himself. A covenant in the scriptures was typically sealed by the sharing of a sacrificial meal. Actually, this was fairly common in other cultures as well. But the covenant was typically sealed by the sharing of a sacrificial meal, and the sharing of the flesh was symbolic of having become of one mind through the covenant agreement. In other words, this peace offering represented one having become of one mind with God. We are told in Scripture that we are to have the mind of Christ, that our goal as Christians is to become like Christ, to become like-minded with Christ. And that is part of what is symbolized in the peace offering. We see this sharing of sacrificial meal in a number of examples in Scripture. One of them is in the case where Jacob was about ready to leave Laban, with whom he had ser served as a, you might say, a hired servant or a slave in a sense for 14 years, and actually more than 14 years, and Jacob didn't feel that he was being treated fairly and that Laban was interested in bilking him out of material goods that belonged to Jacob. And so he decided to leave and he, he left, actually left secretly. And, but Laban found out about it and caught up with him and castigated him for sneaking away. But then they, they came to a meeting of the mines and entered into a covenant concerning their family. Laban was concerned about the welfare of his daughters and others in the family. So Jacob and Laban entered into an agreement. A covenant is an agreement. That's what a covenant is. And we read about Genesis 31, verse 44. Now therefore come and let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So they were entering into this covenant, and to seal the covenant, a sacrifice was offered to God and shared among those present, including, of course, Jacob and Laban, but others also shared in the sacrifice that were involved in this situation. In Genesis 31, verse 54, it tells us that Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. So they entered into this covenant 
and it was sealed by a sacrifice that they shared together. Another example is the covenant between Abraham and God. And the details are slightly different in this case, but the same idea prevails. In Genesis 15, verse 5, then he brought him outside, or in other words, God brought Abraham outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, that is, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham's faith in believing God's promise was accounted for righteousness. Abraham showed had showed that he believed God's word, and he showed that by in, by, in various ways among them by doing the things that God told him to do. So God accounted that to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of earth of the Chaldeans. How did he do that? Well, he told Abraham to leave. Told him to leave and you go up to Canaan. And Abraham obeyed. So God reminds him of that. He says, I brought you up out of the out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old lamb, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So this was another way in which a covenant was sometimes symbolized was cutting it in two and then passing between the two pieces. And so symbolizing the entering into the covenant. And then in verse 17, it says, It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, symbolizing that God was entering into this covenant with Abraham, passing through the two pieces. But the point is that the sealing of the, sac the covenant involved a sacrifice. Now, we have entered into a covenant with God. If we have repented of our sins and been converted, we've entered into a covenant with God, an agreement an agreement with God which places certain obligations on God but also places obligations on us as well. And this is what many people miss when they think about their relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. They claim that Christ has done everything, that we have no obligation toward God. But that's, that's a completely false and misleading understanding of what having entered into a covenant with God involves and requires. In Hebrews 8 and verse 6, it says, Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, speaking of Jesus Christ, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. Now the, the, the new covenant is called a better covenant. And it is better 
in a number of respects because, for one thing, it's the reality of which the Old Covenant was only symbolic. And it encompasses the sacrifices, the true sacrifices, which were pointed to and symbolized by the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. But the reality that was pointed to by these sacrifices is Jesus Christ and also the sacrifices that we make as our part of the covenant. But it goes on to say that this covenant, which is a better covenant, was established on better promises, on better promises. Now, under the old covenant, where there was the promise of a physical inheritance and physical blessings, but the new covenant goes beyond that and under the new covenant is the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, eternal life was in a sense implied in the old covenant and Jesus said to the, to the Jewish leaders, for example, that, that you believe in the scriptures, you have the knowledge necessary for eternal life and they did but eternal life was not specifically and explicitly a promise of the old covenant, but it is of the new covenant. It was only included in the old covenant in, in the sense that the old covenant pointed to the, a greater reality. And that doesn't mean that people under the old covenant will not be in the first resurrection. Many of people will be, or at least a number of people, those who were converted, most of them weren't, but some were. But those who were truly and genuinely converted, living even under the old covenant, will be in the first resurrection because of Christ's sacrifice, not because of the physical sacrifices, but because of sacrifice, a Christ's sacrifice, and because they live by faith. And that faith was counted, is counted to them by God for righteousness. Abraham's going to be in the first resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be there in God's kingdom and we're told that we will sit with them in the kingdom of God. Of course, they weren't even under the old covenant because the old covenant actually had not been established in their time. But they were patriarchs and they were faithful toward God going on in verse 7 it says for if that first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them notice that the fault in the old covenant was with them the people because they were not faithful to the covenant and they never really learned the lessons most of them that they were intended to learn by that covenant. Finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. So one of the reasons the Old Covenant was not sufficient 
was because they did not continue in that covenant. And the new covenant was actually necessary to bring to full fruition everything that was typified under the old covenant. In verse 10, he goes on to say, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. One of the limitations, one of the major limitations, if not the major limitation and problems with the old covenant was that the laws were written on tablets of stone but they were not written in the hearts of the people. They had the law, they had the commandments of God, but they did not keep them because those laws were not in their hearts and minds. They had not internalized God's commandments and his way of life. And under the new covenant, we must internalize God's laws. They must become a part of our nature. Now we have human nature, the nature that every person, every human being is born with, which is a nature that tends toward lawlessness and sin. We have to overcome that nature with the help of God's Spirit. As He writes His laws in our hearts and minds, and we have to have a new nature, a new spirit, a new attitude, a new willingness to obey God and to keep his commandments faithfully. That's part of what our obligation is under the new covenant. God writes the laws in our hearts and minds, but we have to yield and submit to God for him to do that. We have to use the Holy Spirit. We have to study the scriptures. We have to strive to overcome. And as we do those things, then God writes his laws in our hearts and minds. And verse 11 says, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Yes, we will have to have an intimate relationship with God if we're going to be faithful to the covenant. Being faithful to the covenant is knowing God and seeking God. To know God, we need to seek God. We are instructed to seek God daily. And verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's part of the covenant too, that God forgives sin. And all of these things are actually prefigured and typified in the Levitical system and even in the sacrifices. But... This is the reality. The new covenant is the reality of what was intended to be taught, what was symbolized under the old covenant with its sacrifices and so forth. Now we read earlier that the animal being sacrificed for a peace offering had to be without blemish. That is, it couldn't be a sick animal, it couldn't be an injured animal, it couldn't be an animal that had an obvious blemish of some kind. And in addition to that, 
no one who is unclean or ceremonially defiled was permitted to eat of the peace offering. In order to eat of the peace offering, any person partaking of it, whether a priest or anyone else, it was necessary for that person to be ceremonially undefiled. In Leviticus 7 and verse 19, it says, The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire, this speaking of the flesh of the peace offering. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. Notice it says, All who are clean may eat of it, the flesh of the peace offering. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal or an abominable unclean thing who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. So any person who becomes unclean while the peace offering is being consumed was required to make himself scarce and not continue to eat of the peace offering. And there are spiritual lessons behind the fact that the sacrifice was to be unblemished and that no unclean person was to eat of the sacrifice. It would be human nature to tend to give to God as sacrifices those things that were least desirable, that were expendable, that were the leftovers, and things that you didn't really place much value on. What God required of the people of Israel was the things that were dearest to their hearts, the things of most value in terms of the sacrificial animals were to be given to him. He was to receive the best. He was to be given animals that were not blemished, not sick, not malformed, not diseased in any way. And that tells us that we are expected by God to give to him our utmost devotion. That God ought to take first place in our lives and in our thoughts, not be somewhere in the backwaters of our concerns and considerations. God should be in the primary place of honor in our lives. We should honor God before anyone or anything else. That means that we put God before our country. We put God before our family. We put God before ourselves. Jesus Christ said, if you love your father, your mother, brother, or sister, or even your own life, more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. And this is part of what is symbolized by the fact that God requires an unblemished sacrifice. He requires the best that we can give him, and we are to do our best for God. We're to love him more than we love even our own children, our own husband, our own wife. 
our own father or mother, and as I said, our own country. We're to love God before we love our church. And some people have church confused with God, and their devotion is to their church and doing whatever the church tells them to do and doing what God tells them to do is of secondary concern. And they'll, they, they will break God's commandments to keep the traditions of their church, to do the things there that are popular with their peers in their church or social club or whatever. And it's not easy to put God first in this world because this world is Satan's world and the trends, the, you might say, the current, so to speak, the path the world is going down is not God's path. You have to swim against the current to please God and to put God first in your life. So to be at peace with God, we need to be thinking about God constantly, so to speak. God has to be in our thoughts. He, his, his laws, His will as expressed through His commandments. That has to be on our minds constantly. Do we just think about God when we're sick? Is that the only time we really give much thought to God and go to God and, and pray? There are many people who give little or no thought to God except when they're sick. Then they go to God and perhaps ask forgiveness, but other than that, they give little regard to God. Never even God never even enters their thoughts unless there's some kind of disaster, some kind of trouble that they're in, and then they think about God. They expect God to bail them out. Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to put God first, and that's what is symbolized in part by the, by the fact that the animals given to God were to be unblemished animals, not just the leftovers, not just the scraps, not just the ones that were undesirable and expendable. And so we, we ought to ask ourselves, how do we view our obligations to God and the things that we offer to God? Are we giving to God the best that we can, the best of our time, the best of whatever we might be giving to God? Does God come first in our lives? Or does he just get the scraps, the cast-offs, and the leftovers? God has given everything for us, and among the things that he has given to us is an unblemished sacrifice. God not only requires of us an unblemished sacrifice in the sense of how we live our lives, he's blazed the trail by giving us an unblemished sacrifice offered for our benefit. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 18, Peter wrote that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The unblemished sacrifice points to Christ 
who is the ultimate sacrifice, and the fact that he lived a sinless life, that he was unblemished in his character. He was perfect before God, and he was offered, and he offered himself and gave his life and shed his blood for us. One of the lessons that we can draw from the fact that no unclean person was to eat of the sacrifice is that to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to God, to be fit to share fellowship with God in a communal meal, so to speak, requires repentance. It requires having had our sins remitted, washed away and cleansed so that we are clean before God. We're not we're no longer defiled by our sins, but they have been cleansed and washed away. In Acts 2 and verse 38, a group of Jews that Peter and other apostles had been preaching to asked what was required of them. And Peter said to them, Repent, Acts 2 and verse 38, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they were told that they needed to repent, to have their sins remitted, their sins to be washed away, to be cleansed of their sins. They had to repent and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now remember that the peace offering represents reconciliation or peace with God. That's why it's called the peace offering. And we are reconciled to God through the blood of Christ's sacrifice so that we might be at peace with God through Christ, living lives of holiness before him. Notice Peter said, be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit then empowers us to live lives of holiness before God. And we must be living that sort of life to be at peace with God. It's not only having our sins forgiven, but it also has to do with how we're living our lives. Notice in Colossians 1 and verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him that is in Christ all the fullness should dwell, all the fullness of God, Christ is fully God, and in him dwells the fullness of God. Verse 20, by him, that is by Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. That is, God, through Christ, reconciles us to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is a very large part of what the peace offering symbolizes. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if indeed you continue in the faith. All of this is included in the symbolism of the peace offering. It's not just a matter of having been reconciled by the washing away of our sins. That's part of it. 
but we're also to be presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach by continuing in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became minister. Having been reconciled with God through Christ's sacrifice, then we can rejoice before God because we have a right standing with God. In Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, having or much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We're saved as Christ lives his life in us, not only by the fact that he died for us, but that he lives in us. We're saved by his life, the Spirit of God dwelling in us and helping us to remain faithful. And so we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is what is pictured by the peace offering. Sometimes peace offerings are referred to as fellowship offerings, and that term conveys a similar idea to peace offering. Peace offerings were shared with others in fellowship. Peace offering is, in a sense, you might say, having fellowship with God or demonstrating your fellowship with God and with others in the community as well. Peace offerings were commonly shared with others. The meat of the offering was not eaten entirely by the person who, who brought the sacrifice, Often the peace offerings were shared with others, and sometimes on special occasions like feasts, the kings, those who were the leaders in the nation, would bring peace offerings, would bring animals to the feast to be offered as peace offerings, and then the, the meat distributed to the people of the, of the nation. And so the peace offerings in some cases, especially with righteous kings and rulers, they would bring a number of peace offerings on an occasion like the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, and those offerings would be slaughtered and distributed to the people. And so the whole nation shared in the offerings, the fellowship offerings or peace offerings. In Deuteronomy 12, in verse 17, says, You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or, or your oil. This is speaking of the second tithe that was a tithe that was to be saved to keep the various feasts of God, the pilgrim feasts as they were called. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock, or any of your offerings which you vow 
of your free will offerings or heave offerings of your hand. These are talking about peace offerings in the latter case here. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. So notice that the tithe that was to be kept for the keeping of the feasts was to be eaten and consumed in the keeping of the feasts and the peace offerings also were to be shared. And it says, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates shall rejoice before God. In Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, it says, Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand. This is a peace offering. And those who could afford to do so were expected to bring a peace offering to the feast which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. So if God had blessed individuals in such a way that they could afford to bring a peace offering, which is what is free will offering, it's a type of peace offering, then they were expected to do so. And in verse 11, it says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So notice that those who brought the peace offerings were expected to share the food. So it was a communal offering. It was a fellowship offering in which not only the offerer shared with God, but God and the one who did the offering shared with the entire community in partaking of the sacrificial meal. And as is indicated here, peace offerings could be offered anytime, but were especially to be offered during the festival seasons, Pentecost and the earlier festival of unleavened bread and Passover as well as the fall festivals. They were typically offered during, especially during the feast seasons and enjoyed as communal meals that were shared among all keeping the feast, including those who were less fortunate, such as the fatherless and the widows. And this was what God wanted. Now, one of the things that this reminds us of is that Christ promises us that we will sit at his table in his kingdom. Luke 22 and verse 27, Jesus said, Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom. 
and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this promise was specifically made to some of Jesus' closest disciples, but that promise does not pertain only to them. Notice in, in Revelation 3, Jesus promises, in effect, the same promise to us, those who are repentant before him. In Revelation 3 and verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Notice we're told to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, that could be you or me or anyone, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. I will come in and dine with him. I will share the sacrificial meal with him, the fellowship meal. And he with me, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Those who are in the first resurrection will be priests and kings in the kingdom with God, in a sense, sitting on Christ's throne with him and partaking of his bounty, the things that he provides. In fact, there's a prophecy, I believe it's in Isaiah 25, that God will provide a feast for the entire world during the time of his kingdom. When Jesus Christ sits on his throne, God will provide a, a feast, a continual feast for the entire world. That's part of what's pointed to by the festal offerings Peace offerings were offered during the feasts as well as at other times of the year. Our spiritual fellowship with one another is predicated on our having fellowship with God. If we don't have the right relationship with God, then we cannot truly have the right kind of relationship with one another. And having that fellowship with God is predicated on our walking before God in the light of His truth. We are to walk before God in truth, in, in obedience to His Word. In 1 John 1 and verse 1, we read 1 John 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, Concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us or revealed to us to what manifested means. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Notice John said the, that the apostles went out to declare what they had witnessed so that we could have fellowship with them, the disciples of Christ. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, because they were in a right relationship with God, 
in a condition of having been reconciled to God and being in fellowship with the Father and the Son, they taught a particular way of life so that we could share in that fellowship with them and with the Father and Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you're following a path that is the path of darkness, of falsehood, of lies and deceit, false doctrine, and you claim that, that you have fellowship with God, you are deceived, is what this tells us. Because it says that God is light and in him is no darkness, and if we walk in darkness, we lie saying that we know God, that we have fellowship with God, we are lying and we're not practicing the truth. You can't be living a lie. You can't be following lies, deceit, and spiritual blindness and be in a perfect relationship with God. Now, God is merciful, and God may overlook certain things, and how much he will overlook is not for me to determine, but we need to strive to be on the right path and to make sure that what we are following is in fact true. True doctrine is what the Word of God actually teaches, not what men teach who are trying to make excuses for false traditions and disobedience to God's express commandments and instructions. Goes on to say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, the right kind of fellowship with one another is predicated on our living by the truth, having fellowship with God, and then we can have fellowship of the right kind with one another. And that makes us a part of God's church, which is not some organization of men, not some human corporate organization. It is the church of God consists of those who have fellowship with Christ and the Father because they're following the truth. Then they can be at one of one mind with one another. It says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Peace offerings and the sacrifices in general remind us of another important consideration, and that is that our relationship with God is a reciprocal relationship. It's a give-and-take relationship. It's not all take on one end and all give on the other, but it is a relationship that is mutually beneficial. We give our devotion and obedience to God, and from that we receive all manner of blessings and benefits for which we also, in return, give thanks. We give thanksgiving to God as He blesses us and gives to us. 
God provided the oxen, the sheep, the goats, and the grain and other crops for the offerings that were given under the Levitical system. He provided all of those things, and he required only a small portion in return. Relatively small portion was required to give be given back to him. But he provided all those things to begin with. There are lots of people who begrudge giving anything to God. They don't acknowledge God as the benefactor and the source of their blessings. They're not willing to give God anything. There are those who are hostile to the very idea of showing any deference or respect toward God or, or giving to God anything. And it's unfortunate because they're the ones that will suffer the greatest from their spirit of disrespect and contempt for God. God showed his devotion to us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And we, in turn, show our devotion to God by yielding to him and obeying him and by giving thanks to him. God gives to us life, breath, and sustenance. He provides everything for us necessary for life. And we give to him our tithes and offerings as well as our thanksgiving and other gifts that are expected to be given on our part. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 9, God said to Israel, the Lord God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body in the increase of your livestock and in the produce of the land of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice what God said. If you obey and turn to God with all your heart and soul and you keep his commandments, then God will make you abound and prosper in everything and you will be able to rejoice. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, and in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. People have an intuitive understanding that lying and committing adultery and fraud and murder and so forth are sins. And if you read the Ten Commandments, there's not anything that requires a college education to understand about them. A child can understand the commandments if he wants to. It's not a lack of having been told what they need to do that is the problem with the people of Israel and mankind in general. The problem is we're not doing it. 
See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Yes, God requires certain things of us, and He in turn gives really much more than He requires of us. Through unreserved devotion to God, through genuine repentance, through His mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be at peace with God. We can be in His fellowship as His sons and daughters, living joyfully in His presence for eternity. And that's what the peace offering points to.